Uh, let's pray as we get started this morning. Thank you, Jesus. God, thank you um, for mornings like this, God, that just show and model what the body of Christ is supposed to be. It's us all walking together, worshiping together, praying for one another, for our children, God, for each other. And I pray, Jesus, that that would be the same now, Lord, that we would be together as we hear you, as we hear from you, as we, as we dig into your word, God, and um, that we would be set free this morning, Jesus, that burdens would be lifted, God, and that chains would be broken, Father, and that we would leave here closer to you, um, ready to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, you know, I thought with, uh, all, you know, we have a lot of visitors this morning with the, with the preschool singing and with families getting their ch- children dedicated. You know, I thought, what better Sunday than with all these visitors to talk about money? <laughs> so that's what we're going to do today. We're, everyone say money. money. All right, it's out there now, all right? We in church are going to talk about money. All right, and here's the ground rules for it. We're going to be unapologetic about it. We're going to talk about it unabashedly, unashamedly. Do you know why we're going to do that? Because that's how God treats the subject of money. He doesn't apologize for it. It's all throughout the scripture. Over 2,000 verses in the Bible, over 2,000 talk about the topic of money in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's about gold, silver, uh, being poor, being rich, giving, working, whatever it might be. Over 2,000. Eleven of the recorded parables that Jesus speaks about, that we know of, involve the topic of money. So why, why is that the case then? Why would God spend so much time in his word discussing money? And the obvious reason is because it's an important topic. It's incredibly important. It, it, it is in, in our lives all the time. It's in our conversation all the time. It affects so many different things. And yet, and yet, the devil has succeeded in making the topic of money taboo in the church. Don't talk about money in the church. Don't bring it up. Even though it's everywhere in here. But we can't bring it up in the church. Yet, when we leave here, it's all we talk about. Some of us might even on the drive home. Do you want to go to lunch? I don't know. Can we afford it? You know, we base our, our vacations on it. We, we, we base our purchases off of it. My wife yesterday texted me a picture of a fanny pack for Disney World. She goes, can I get this? It's $1.50. You go, you spoil yourself, baby. I love you. You get that fanny pack. Nothing but the best for my baby girl. But we talk about it so, so much. And yet, there's this feeling. I mean, some of y'all are probably already squirming in your seats. I might get fired tomorrow. Right? No, we, 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 as soon as we talk about it in church, it's like, this, this, no, shut your mouth. Don't do it. Do you know that the first uh, cause of divorce is infidelity and the second is money? Can you imagine what we would do if we started not just infusing God in the conversation of money in our homes, but actually made him the centerpiece of it? What that would affect? And a lot of times we talk around it, but we don't actually talk directly to it. And so this morning, unapologetically, we are going to talk about money because it is so, so important. You know, a lot of the verses in the Bible that discuss money um, are, are warnings, all right? A lot of them are warning us about money. And here's, here's one that I want to start with that is going to kind of set the stage. And it's 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 9. It says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped 
by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Everyone say ruin and destruction. Okay, I'm going to make sure we're on the same page. Verse 10, here it is. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the truth and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So here's the thing about money. Money in and of itself is not inherently bad. If you, have a, if you have a bag of money and you put it on the shelf in your house, it's not going to jump off the shelf and attack you, all right? You don't have to run out. It's not like there's a panther loose in your house, okay? And, and you're, you're afraid of your own safety. Money is not dangerous unless given power. And if we read this verse, what we need to understand is that it's not money just, just alone. It's the love of money, right? It's, it's what it is. It's, it's the pursuit of money, what happens in our lives is when we take that money that is not dangerous off the shelf, when it becomes dangerous, when we take it off the shelf and we put it on a throne. Because when we do that, we're taking Jesus off the throne and putting him on the shelf. And that's where the ruin, that's where the destruction, and that's where the many sorrows come from. Because money can actually be a great thing. Today is not an attack on money. Money can be used for all sorts of things for missions, for rebuilding the Bahamas, for helping your neighbor, whatever the, for providing for your family, education, all sorts of great things. But if we give it power, if we give it love, and we put it on the throne, God tells us, God tells us, not me, that it will cause ruin and destruction. Because what we're doing in those moments by putting money on the throne is we're saying, money, you make me happier than God can. You will make me happier by what you can do for me than what God can. God is not in competition with money. You know why? Because he has it all. He has it all. We never think about God being rich. God is rich. He's the richest because it all belongs to him. So why would he be in competition with something that is his? And so what it is about is about, about understanding the place of money in our lives, the role that it plays within our lives. And really, what we're going to talk about this morning is the identity that we have with money and with God. Is money on the shelf to be used as a tool, or is it on the throne, something we're pursuing instead of God? Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Notice the difference in vocabulary that Jesus uses there. He says, if you follow God, you are a servant of God. I don't know if any of you have ever served God in any capacity, but it's not in the, it's not in the way that we consider and talk about serving. We, we tend to, uh, you know, vilify or even, even just downgrade what serving is. When we serve God, it's the best thing ever. It is the most fun thing ever. It's the most rewarding thing ever. It gives us joy. It gives us fulfillment. So when Jesus said you can serve God, meaning you can be fulfilled, you can have joy, you can have purpose, or you can be enslaved to money. That paints a pretty clear picture right there. Joy and fulfillment and purpose or being enslaved. It's like trying to chase two rabbits at the same time. You can't do it. You have to pick one. Again, God is not in competition with money. So let's look at two stories here that really identify, uh, that, that talk about identity. Two very similar situations. Two men who were very rich, who went after Jesus, and there were two very different outcomes. 
The first is found in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Okay, when the Bible uses phrases like very, whether it's very handsome, very rugged, he talks about that, about Joseph and David in the Old Testament, very beautiful, like Esther. Here he's talking about Zacchaeus being very rich, okay? That means he's not just rich. He's Macaulay Culkin, Richie Rich, okay? He's got some money, all right? And so he is very rich, and it's important to understand how he got very rich. And he got very rich by being the chief tax collector. This is actually the only mention of anyone in the Bible that's the chief tax collector. We know Matthew, uh, one of the disciples, was a tax collector, a tax collector, not chief. We know that Jesus ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, that's what the Bible calls them. But there's only one mention of the chief tax collector, and that's here in Luke chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. So what does that tell us? It tells us that he is very rich, but also that he must be incredibly hated. Why? Because he is taking money from the Jews and giving, them to the, giving it to the Romans while also pocketing some himself. You see, tax collectors were crooks, and they were, they were seen as traitors because they were Jews working for the Roman government, taking money from the Jews. So they were not popular in any way. And we, what we see here is this vicious cycle with Zacchaeus where he's hated by people, and so because he's hated, he takes more money, becomes more rich, and with that, he's more hated. And it just, it's a snowball And so what we can also gather from Zacchaeus, besides being very rich, is that he is also very lonely. He's very depressed. He's very bitter. Very angry. Because people despise him. I don't know about you, but I don't like it when people despise me. Especially pretty much everybody. Verse 3, it says, He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore uh, fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. A translation, VBS, Sunday school style. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up to a sycamore tree to see what he could see. All right, anybody? Old school? All right, awesome. Got some of y'all in here. He was a wee little man. So probably some of that anger, uh, you know, I'm not saying I can speak from experience, but, uh, you know, people pick on you about that from time to time. So he climbs up to this tree. What we see here is a desperate man. And what that points to it tells us that being very rich does not translate to happiness all the time. Because if he, if he was happy, if he was content, I guarantee you this short little guy would not be climbing the sycamore tree in front of all these people just to get a glimpse at Jesus. If he was happy, if he was content, he would say, I'm good. Y'all go do that. I'm going to stay here with my very rich stuff. But he doesn't. He climbs up to the sycamore tree to see what he could see. Verse 5, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Here's what's so awesome about Jesus. He looks at Zacchaeus and he doesn't say, hey, chief tax collector, Hey, very rich guy. He says, Zacchaeus. He calls him by name. Because Jesus was saying, your identity is not in what you do. It's not in how much money you have, how much stuff you have, or even what anyone else thinks about you. Your identity is who I've called you to be. And I've called you to be Zacchaeus. You know what's amazing? The the name Zacchaeus translates to the pure one. 
So when he looks at Jesus, he says, come on down, pure one. When was the last time you think Zacchaeus was called that? Jesus is not at war against money. He wants our identity. He wants our heart. And if we can align those two things correctly, we don't have a problem. But so many times we look at what we do and what we have and we say, that is me. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are who I've called you to be. You're Zacchaeus. And so what does Zacchaeus do in response when hearing that he is the pure one? It says he quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. When was the last time you think he felt that? But the people were displeased. He, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord. Interesting there, I love that. He doesn't say he stood before Jesus. Do you notice that? And when, he, when, when Jesus calls him off the tree and he's in his house, now he is not standing before some guy that he wanted to see a glimpse of, this guy named Jesus, who was from Nazareth, who was the son of a carpenter. He's standing before the Lord. And he's made that distinction. Why? Because now his heart is towards him. Jesus has called him and he's responded. In unprovoked, he says this, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Unprompted, he says this. Jesus will say, all right, check it out. This is what you got to do. I know you're a crook. I know you're a chief tax collector. If you want to follow me, you better do this. He doesn't. Because now he's found a new identity. And this thing that had this hold on him that was causing him misery and discontent now didn't matter at all. He saw who was in front of him. He saw his Lord, and he was able to say, all this stuff, it can go. I don't need it. Because what I found is so much greater than that. And so unprompted, he says, I'm going to give half of my riches to the poor, and I'm going to give four times back to anyone he cheated. For a second, let's just consider as the chief tax collector, how many people do you think that might be? More than just a couple, right? I think Zacchaeus probably had a laundry list of people that he had wronged. So when he's talking about giving four times back, I mean, who knows what he's left with, right? We also need to notice something else here. Jesus doesn't tell Zacchaeus to quit his job, right? He doesn't say, stop all that. It's important for us to know this morning when we're talking about money that Jesus, I believe Jesus wants us to be a success at what we do. I believe he's placed desires in our heart specifically for us to walk and be very, very, very good at, but also to have fun with and to have joy with that serve his kingdom and serve his purpose. See, and what happens is we get so consumed with what that thing is, it becomes our identity instead of our testimony. God wants the testimony. He wants us to get to a place where we say, how did you do that? How did you get to this place? It's the Lord, and we, we give credit back to him. Because when we make something our identity, and it's all about us, when people ask us those questions, we say, well, I did this, and I did that, and I, 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 I. And God's not getting any of the glory. He wants our testimony, and when we follow after him, we pursue him, and he stays on the throne, and we're success at what we do, then we praise him. And we praise him. Let's keep reading What's the, uh, how, how this story finishes. Verse 9, Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. So salvation has come to Zacchaeus, not just in his relationship with Jesus. He's being saved from a false identity. His false identity is chief, is chief tax collector, is very wealthy is this, is this is miserable, my life is, is, is nothing. 
And he was saved from that. And now he has a Lord Jesus who visited him, and his name is Zacchaeus, and he sees himself as pure. That's what happens when we put Jesus back on the throne and put other things in our life on the shelf. Now, a second story with a much different ending. This is found in Mark chapter 10, and this is the story of the rich young ruler. It's very interesting, his name, rich young ruler. Starting in verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we see here there is an urgency. If we're taking this, this guy at face value, there's a, there's a lot of sermons on this story, and some people say, you know, he's just trying to show off and blah, blah, blah. But I, I really believe when I read this that this guy, maybe he was trying to show off at first, but there's a genuine curiosity. There's a genuine desire to know Jesus. He runs up to him and he falls down and he says, good teacher, what must I do? And, and to me, and it, well, let's just keep going because it, it's, uh, it gets better. Verse 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So what I believe Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler in this moment is, look, if you think I'm good in the way that good means to us, then you, then you are then saying that I am God. And if I am God, then I should be enough. Immediately, Jesus is, 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 is talking right to the heart of this rich young ruler. He's bypassing the initial question, what must I do to be saved? Like he always does with so many of us. He goes, okay, I know that's what you're asking, but let's get to the heart of the matter. He says, you're calling me good. Well, God is the only one that's good, so if that's true, then shouldn't I be enough for you? Because he knows that he's not enough. Right off the bat, Jesus addresses this. And then he continues on, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Then verse 20 comes around, and the rich young ruler calls him teacher. He drops the good and just goes to teacher because he knows now he's in a little bit of trouble. He knows now what his issue is. Because if he called him good teacher again, he'd say, yes, you are God. So he backs off a little bit. Teacher, I have, uh, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I love, I love that first uh, part of, of uh, verse 21. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. You know, he sees this guy that desperately wants Jesus, but he knows he's got all this stuff and to let it go is gonna be really, really hard. But again, Jesus is after our heart. And he's not going to stand there and let something else be God of our lives. He wants that. Because he knows that if you chase after those other things, like we read in Timothy, it's going to cause ruin and destruction and all sorts of sorrows. So it's not, it's, it's not a selfish thing. It's incredibly selfless. Saying, look, you want, you want all this? I am the answer. I am the answer. He says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He says, you lack one thing. Because on paper, look, what, what is it? On, the, on paper, this guy looks like he has everything. He's rich. He's young. He's got power, right? Because he's a ruler. I mean, on paper, you think, I want to be that guy. Jesus says, no, no, you lack one thing. 
And it's the greatest thing of all. He's saying, look, your treasure and your, your storehouse in heaven, it's bone dry. This rich young ruler was so consumed with the temporary, with the here and now, that he had forgotten all about the eternal, the there and then. And he was willing to forgo that to keep what he had now. Jesus says, you lack one thing. It's the biggest thing of all. And he's not telling all of us to go sell everything we have. And give it, I mean, we, we need to give to the poor. We need, it, we need to give. We're going to do that in a minute. But for this guy right here, for this guy in this moment, he's saying, this is what it's about. Is money going to be your happiness? Or am I? You called me good teacher? Do you mean it? Or am I just teacher? Is God your good teacher? Or is he just your teacher? It's a question we need to ask ourselves more than once, probably a day. Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't walk away sad because he had great wealth. He, had, he walked away sad because the wealth that he had actually had him. And it owned him. The stuff that he had accumulated now owned him. Do you want to know how much we value stuff here in America, in our culture? Drive down Beach Boulevard or Atlantic Boulevard and start counting all of the storage unit facilities we have on those roads. It's crazy. We love some stuff. But if we're not careful, stuff will begin to own us. And we're supposed to own it. That thing that we put on the shelf now is coming off the shelf and wrapping us up. And we're, we're as, as uh, the Bible says, enslaved to it. This rich young ruler with all the money and all the power that he had was really powerless over his own stuff. Isn't that amazing? And he went away sad. So we have this chief tax collector that was very rich that sees Jesus and says, I don't need any of it. I have you. And then we have another one that says, I got it all and I see you, but I'm going to go with you all. One was filled with joy and excitement. The other walked away sad. It's right here. Over and over and over and over in our scriptures. Going back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says in verse 6, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. You want to find the lottery ticket in the Bible? There it is. That's it. Godliness, being content with Jesus in your life, that is great wealth. Is that how the world maybe measures it? No. But the world is all exterior. Jesus is saying, you, you want wealth? It's in your heart, and it's what's to come. Your storehouse in heaven will be full. That is great wealth. So what do we do with this? Okay, let's kind of transition a little bit. How do we, how do we make this practical in our lives? Because it's one thing to say, hey, you know, blah, 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 and give no instruction at all. Thankfully, the Bible gives us instruction. Philippians 4, verse 19, And my God will meet, you, will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Not our glory. His glory. He will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I would like to rely and experience God's glorious riches in my life versus my own. I want, I want that in my life. Let, let's, let's, let's look at a story that describes uh, this verse right here. And you know, there's this, this to me, this story of Jesus, this miracle that he performs is, is one of the coolest and I'll even say funniest miracles that I think, I don't think a lot of his miracles are funny, you know, like walking on water isn't really funny, uh, 
you know, healing lepers and, and lame people walking and letting there be sight uh, to the blind. These are powerful, awesome miracles. Raising Lazarus from the dead after like four days, that's amazing. No one's sitting there laughing at that, right? This one, if I was there, if I was one of Jesus' disciples, I would be cackling. Because this is what it says. Peter and Jesus are walking into Capernaum, and this, this Pharisee or official asked Peter, you know, uh, is Jesus paying his taxes? Is God paying his taxes? Which to me is just... You know, the Pharisees, I, I love the back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's one of my favorite things to read about in the Bible. But, you know, a lot of times they think they have power when really, like, right here, they're just kind of being like a mosquito. You know, and it's like, just get out of here. What are you talking about? Jesus is basically homeless, right? When he's doing his ministries, the Bible says that, you know, birds have their nests, foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It doesn't really paint a picture of Jesus having this awesome house. And so it's ridiculous to me to think that these Pharisees are asking, is he paying his taxes? When was the last time you saw a homeless person and thought that? You know, better pay up. <clears throat> But that's what they're asking here. It's ridiculous. And so Jesus and Peter, we're not going to get into the whole story, but they start talking about taxes and should they pay, should they not. And so this is what Jesus says to Peter ultimately in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 17. It says, so go down to the lake and throw in a line. Open the mouth of the first fish you catch and you will find a large silver coin. Take it and pay the tax for both of us. Right? That's one of those things where if like you're reading it, you skim over it, you don't really notice what happened. But let's recap. Jesus asked Peter, who is a commercial professional fisherman, to go throw a little line out. Like picture, you know, those old toy uh, Fisher-Price rod and reels with a little cork on it, you know. Go throw that out there. Not a net, just a line. Just throw a line. And the first fish that you catch is going to have our taxes in it. I mean, I'm thinking, like, this is one of the most baller moves that Jesus ever makes, you know. And if I'm Peter, and I see that fish, and it's got a silver coin in it, I'm just gonna, I would just take the fish and throw it at the, at the Pharisee. Just let him smack in the face. There's your tax. And walk away. I mean, what a cool moment here. What an amazing thing that Jesus does. A, a fish had the tax in his mouth. Can we wrap our head around that for a second? That's weird. Bible is awesome. I love the Bible. But in that moment, Jesus gives Peter a job to do. And then, by his glory, he provides. What a great picture. You know, so many times with money, we just want, we just want God to, just, can you just put it in my hand? And sometimes, praise God, he does that. But there's other times, you've heard Pastor Howard talk about it. We love the check in the mail, but sometimes it's the overtime hours. That's the blessing. He gives Peter a job to do. But in the job, he gets the glory. And that's what it's all about. He, and, and let me say this, let me say this. There are some of you in here that need to hear this like 150%. God will supply for you. He will, wherever you're at right now, as you came in this morning, you need to hear, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, hear that, that God will supply for you. It is in his word. He is no respecter of persons. He loves you and he is your God and he will supply, I promise you. If you keep him on the throne, don't get so consumed with everything else that we forget who we're worshiping in all this. Who is our supplier? So in that, as he provides for us, what do we do then? We need to remember our calling. We're not called to be collectors or hoarders or anything like that. We're called to give. We're called to give out. And the more that we see God 
supply our needs, and we, and, we, and we let him get the glory with his glorious riches, you know what it compels us to do? To give out, to give back. And one of, one of the things that we ask ourselves here at Beaches Chapel that concerns all of us is if for some reason or, what, or, or another, God decided to close the doors of this church, would the community around us notice and would they care? And those two questions should be on the forefront of our mind as a church and as a school all the time. Because people might be, think that they can argue with our theology and what we do here, but they can't argue with our actions. If we're outside the door doing things, like, like going to the USO tomorrow and feeding the military and other things, doing baskets for beam over Thanksgiving and sending money and supplies to the Bahamas and things like that, they're going to see that. And God has called us to give. He's called us to give. And when we give, if you've ever been in that place, when you put something on your heart and you do it, it's the most rewarding thing ever. And let's look. Let's look at one of the, I think it's the first ever recorded story of giving in the Bible. And it starts in Genesis 4 and verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel in his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. There it is again. We see, we've seen ruin, destruction, sorrow, walking away sad, and now a downcast face. What we see here is two brothers. One gave the best, and the other gave something. Or a translation, one gave happily and the other gave begrudgingly. One gave with joy, the other gave religiously. God does not want us to give religiously. He wants, to get, he wants us to give with joy because, again, God's not after our money. He's got it all. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. You know why I can, and we, we can talk about this at Beaches Chapel so openly is because we know that our financial well-being, my financial well-being with my family is not dependent on anybody in this room. It's not dependent on a single person in here. God supplies our needs. And so if everyone one Sunday decided to stop giving, God would still supply. He's not after that. He's after your heart. But what happens when we begin to give? Oh my goodness. You're going to see some things happen. Like what, you ask? Why don't we read about it? <laughs> Second Corinthians, why, why doesn't the band come up? And we're going to close with this. Listen to these words, because they are awesome. Second Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. Remember this. In other words, don't forget. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There it is, not out of religion, not out of obligation. He wants to us to be a cheerful giver, to love one another. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. That's what I'm talking about. 
Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks! Be to God for his incredible gift. Come on now. The way that we keep money on the shelf is to keep Jesus on the throne. Listen, I'm not making this stuff up. For some, it might be uncomfortable to talk about this on a Sunday. It shouldn't be. It absolutely should not be. But the formula is in here. You want to you have... Some the worry and anxiety go away over, work, over money, put it back on the shelf and pursue Jesus. Include it in your conversations at home with your spouse. Don't carry it internally. Pray about it. Put it before the Lord over and over and over again, and you will see that He will supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And in that, as you, as you receive it, you are going to be compelled to give and it's going to overflow out of this place and others will hear about it and come. We're called to give. There's a story, this isn't in my notes, I'm going to tell it really quick, of Elijah. When he goes to this town, God calls him to go to this town, Zarephath. And he says, there's going to be a woman there at the well. Talk to her and let her get you water. So Elijah goes and he sees the woman. He says, hey, can you get me some water? She says, sure. He says, before you do that, can you actually bring me a cake of bread? And this is her response. She says, right now I'm collecting sticks to make a fire for the last meal for my son and me. And after that, we have nothing and we're going to die. So we're basically, we're fixing our last meal. And then we're just going to wait and die. Starvation, thirst, whatever it is. This low, low point of this widow. She's basically admitting, like, can you imagine being in that place where you can't supply for your child, where now they're just going to die out of want? And he says, do this, do it anyway. Do it anyway. And she does. And God gives them flour and oil until the rain comes again. There's, there's been this famine, there's, there's no rain, and so there's no food, no crops. He says, God's going to supply for you until the rain comes again. She had nothing, and she gave. Never ever believe that you don't have anything to give. You do. Whether it's money, your time, your service, we, are, we all are gifted with many different things. And so we need, be, we need to be givers. But this morning, we want to pray for you. If you're in that place where you don't know how you're going to make ends meet, maybe you're not trying to be rich, you're just trying to pay the bills. Understand that God will supply all of your needs. Let's stop having our identity be wrapped up in what we have and what we do. You see, because here's the thing. Money will tell us over and over that we don't have enough, that we don't measure up to the person next to us, that the stuff we have isn't any good. That's what money tells us. It's, it's chasing the wind. 
Jesus tells us that you're more than a conqueror, that you're better than you could ever possibly dream you could be, that when people call you a notorious sinner, he calls you a pure one. He says that you have more than enough. He says, I will supply with my glorious riches. Don't we want to be in that boat? Amen. So let's stand up. I'm going to have the pastors and the elders come forward this morning. We want to pray for you. Don't be ashamed. Listen, we all deal with, with finances. It's, it's tough. But let's lay it before the Lord. Let's put him back on the throne. And let's let, instead of money being our identity, let's let it be our testimony. Let's let it be what we talk about for God's glory, not for ourselves. And let me also say this. If you're like Zacchaeus and you don't know Jesus and he's calling you, come down off the tree this morning. Climb down off the tree and come up and get saved. Start a relationship with him. He's got amazing things for you. He wants to set you free. But you have to come off the tree. Jesus didn't cut down the tree. He didn't pull Zacchaeus down. He said, come down. I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus did. So make that step this morning. And if there's anything else you need prayer for, we're a praying church. But you need prayer for health for relationships, for your children. We want to pray and stand in agreement over that for you. Amen. Let me pray and then come right up. Don't waste any time. Father, thank you so much that you are our supplier. In every season, in every situation, you are our supplier. You, your word says, do not worry. Do not worry about tomorrow. You've clothed the lilies of the field. You're going to clothe us. You're going to give us what we need. All the riches in the world are yours. And if we're your children, you're going to, you're going to supply for us. Forgive us, Lord, if we've put money on the throne. We've made money our identity. Help us, Father, to make it our testimony. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name.